Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Thank you for watching this uh, virtual lecture uh, event hosted by the Institute of Politics. Um, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. For those who are new to, um, to this broadcast live stream, um, IWP is a graduate school of national security, intelligence, and international affairs. We have five master's degrees, uh, 18 certificates uh, of study, a doctoral program, and two new online Master of Arts programs. If you are interested in learning more about IWP, please visit iwp.edu. Um, I am Dr. Zach Alal, a research scholar uh, here at IWP. Uh, I am also a graduate of the Institute uh, in 2018 um, from the Program of Strategic Intelligence Studies. Tonight's event is about Algeria. Uh, the speaker tonight is going to be Andrew Ferrand, a non-resident senior fellow covering North Africa at the Atlantic Council, and the author of the, his new book, The Algerian Dream, published in 2021. Andrew lived and worked in Algeria from 2013 to 2020. I had the privilege to uh, work with him in his uh, a uh, fantastic project uh, he hosted uh, called uh, Andy Home uh, for Algeria's first reality TV show. Um, Andrew also worked in uh, implementing various youth development programs uh, across the country uh, alongside a range of uh, very creative projects. Um, he has been quoted as an expert on North Africa by the New Yorker. Um, he is the translator of the Inside uh, of the Battle of Algiers book, uh, published in 2017 uh, by uh, Zohra Drif, uh, one of the uh, very famous and respected um, women fighters during the Algerian Revolution. He was a contributor to the Uncommon Alger, in, published in 2016, and the author of numerous articles on Algeria. He is well known in Algeria as a travel writer, photographer, and media personality. He is a graduate of Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service mm -hmm. and is uh, proficient, uh, I can testify about this, uh, proficient uh, in Algerian Arabic as well as a uh, French speaker. Um, so welcome, Andrew. Uh, I, I would... Uh, I'm really happy to have you uh, here tonight, uh, share with us your experience, uh, your Algerian experience, as well as uh, your uh, telling us more about your new book. I know that, you know, Algeria's population uh, is majoritarily under 35 years old. And, uh, you know, Algeria has changed dramatically in the past couple of years. Uh, we all know Algeria went through the uh, the revolution war between 54 and, and 62, but also a, a very, very brutal decade of the civil war and war against extremist Islamism. Um, but this new generation is very different, uh, right? So can you tell us more uh, about how you describe this new generation in your, in your book and, and, and elaborate uh, more about this? 
Yeah, thank you, Zach. Uh, and thank you to IWP for hosting this event. It's great to be here with you and, and with everybody who's joining us this evening. Uh, so my book does center on those Algerians who are under 35, um, particularly those in, in their 20s and 30s today who make up this large youth bulge in Algeria and who are, um, as you noted in your introduction, uh, quite unique in, in several ways. The way I like to think about them is they share so many of the values and uh, traditions and, and customs and um, beliefs of older generations. They're deeply Algerian, they're deeply steeped in Algerian culture, um, but they also have a number of other influences that really set them apart from preceding generations. Notably, uh, the advent of satellite television in the 1990s, and then of uh, the internet in beginning around the early 2000s in Algeria, and then really taking off with the introduction of uh, mobile internet connections in late 2013. So those uh, changes in influenced things in a couple ways, uh, primarily by, you know, as they did in many other countries, um, exposing young people to the lives that their peers were living elsewhere. And this has been a really uh, dramatic uh, change in Algeria because the country is so isolated in so many ways. Uh, for those who don't know it well, you know, there's a reason you haven't heard of Algeria very often. And it's largely because the country likes it that way. Uh, its government is quite content with staying out of the fray and out of the news and uh, just doing its own thing, exporting oil, keeping the social peace and um, trying to make as few waves as possible. There's very little tourism, uh, very little uh, trade besides exporting hydrocarbons and importing uh, a lot of manufactured goods that the country can't make for itself or doesn't make for itself now. And um, so it's it's relatively isolated and and as a result young people in algeria for many years didn't have opportunities to connect with the outside world in the way that say young people in many other countries across north africa or the arab world uh, might have through through tourism through trade through these other sorts of connections so algeria has long-standing ties to france thanks to the colonial period and, and to some you know continuing uh, cultural and education ties, but otherwise is, uh, is fairly isolated. And the, uh, these new technologies opened up avenues for young people in Algeria to see what the experience of their peers elsewhere was like, as I said. And this led to a lot of, um, a lot of comparisons, a lot of questions. Why do people just next door in Morocco get to have certain things that we don't have next door in Tunisia, uh, you know, never mind what's happening elsewhere in Africa and Europe uh, and all around the world. So this has over time uh, shaped young Algerians views of their place in the world in a different way than, than their parents. And I think has been a major contributing factor to the latest uh, sort of social upheaval that Algeria witnessed during the years that I was there, which was in 2019 with the start of the Hirak protest movement. And exactly. that was, a historic movement that uh, that I think, um, while it was derived from uh, and, and fed by many different generations and many different parts of Algeria's population, was very much um, fed in large part by 
young people and their experience in Algeria and comparing that experience to what they've seen elsewhere. This, this is, a, I think, a very, very fantastic kind of a, a comprehensive review, uh, picture of the book. And I'm sure uh, in, in the upcoming moments, we will get, we will dive deeper into some of the topics you cover in the book. But before that, I think it will be very interesting to hear your story and, and how you ended up in Algeria in the first place. And, you know, you've, you've spent uh, seven or eight years in Algeria. Um, I personally witnessed you and saw you speaking fluent Algerian when we were shooting Andy Hulm. I remember that you were talking to the, uh, you know, to the participants as well as um, as the technical staff and everybody in Algerian to the point where they actually gave you an Algerian surname. I remember, and um, you could even you know go by as, as Algerian. So how how did you end up in Algeria? What can you give us more about your personal story, your personal background? Because everyone wants to hear that story. Yeah, thanks. Um, that's a very very generous introduction, Zach. <laughs> Good example of Algerian hospitality, kindness to, to, uh, to strangers. Um, no, I, I had a wonderful experience in Algeria right from the very start. Uh, and that was way back in 2012. Actually, it was 10 years ago this month that I first went to Algeria. Uh, the, at that time, it was in the context of my work with the National Democratic Institute, uh, where I was working in Washington. And then, you know, as Programming ramped up in the aftermath of the Arab Spring. Uh, new opportunities opened up. Algeria seemed for, for a little while there like it was ready to engage with the outside world in, in new ways. And so there were new opportunities um, to, to expand programming there uh, in, in my capacity in that job. And uh, I went several times, really found the place fascinating and uh, came to just really consider it somewhere that I that I thought I could, if not uh, feel at home, then at least feel like I had, I could have a great experience there. There was so much to learn, there was so much to kind of explore. And so as someone interested in um, trying to understand how, how places work and what makes them tick, it was uh, a really fascinating and unique place. So that's what got me into it. Um, I stayed there for, for seven years in the end, which was not anticipated, but uh, more opportunities kept coming up. I worked for uh, other American organizations, uh, ended up, you know, doing some work uh, in sort of the literary and cultural fields, uh, as you mentioned, and then also um, working in uh, some economic and political analysis roles, which, which gave me opportunities to explore different facets of the country. So I, by the end, you know, had a, had a number of professional and personal experiences that gave me a pretty good sense of, um, Yep, just many different facets of Algerian society. I was able to travel all over the country uh, through some of that work and, and to meet many young people who I was uh, working with and, and, and sort of working for and serving through the education projects that I helped to implement. And uh, that's what got me really thinking about, you know, who are these, these young people? What are they after? How are they different from from those who came before them and uh, sort of asking some of those central questions that I try to answer through the book. Did you, did you have any, you know, were you expecting a cultural shock? Did you have a cultural shock? What were the Algerian facets that initially really uh, impressed you and the ones that you had a challenge to adapt to? Um, I had 
<clears throat> already spent some time in the region, so that was a good on-ramp. Uh, having already lived for a year and a half in Morocco, uh, studied Arabic in Syria and Jordan, so I had some varied experiences in, in the wider Arab world, um, and that was a big help just in terms of knowing what to anticipate in Algeria, but also to be able to compare for myself and to see that there were some aspects of Algeria that I really enjoyed. Um, obviously in such a large country, the culture is extremely varied. So there's a lot to, to explore and to discover and region by region, you hear widely differing uh, accents, you eat widely differing foods, you see widely differing styles of dress. Uh, so it's, it's a really fascinating little mini continent all of itself to, to explore. So I think that's what attracted me to it a lot. Um, and, and just kind of kept my mind turning throughout my years there. And, uh, a lot of what I what I experienced and what I learned through the course of those years was was what I tried to channel into the book. Excellent, and in fact, you channeled it very well. I, I had I had the opportunity to skim through it uh, very quickly uh, in a short notice, but I was able to look to look at it. What were what were the some of the changes since in the book? Of course, you talk about about the Hirak and your experience of the Hirak, and for the audience, the Hirak is is the Algerian revolution that began in, in February of 2019. Um, and, and, I'll, and I'll let you talk more in depth about it. What were the changes that you witnessed since you've been in Algeria in 2013 and the Hirak was in 2019? So those were, uh, you know, six years. And some of the years, especially 2017, 2018, were the years that kind of were building up and leading to the Hirak. What did change? What did you notice? And what did you witness in that yeah. period? That period is a really interesting one in Algeria's history, I think. Uh, and so I was glad to be there for it and then glad to kind of share that with, with outside audiences. Um, it's a post-war period in some ways because so much of Algerian life is marked by that experience of the violence of the 1990s and the trauma that resulted from it. Now, that trauma is deeply embedded uh, within people in their 40s, 50s, 60s, uh, much less so among younger people. Some folks, for example, those who are our age and in their 30s, do uh, have memories as children of what happened in, in those years. A different experience from what their parents had, but, but some of them do remember. Those who are in their 20s uh, only remember it in the sense that, that they've heard stories passed on from, uh, from older relatives. So their experience is quite different and their uh, appreciation for the social contract, if you will, uh, that, that's kind of at the center of Algerian citizens' relationship with their government is very different. And, and that social contract for many decades has been based upon an understanding that the state will provide the basics of a good life to citizens. Uh, so Algeria's constitution guarantees rights to education, uh, to healthcare, to housing. So there are some quite generous um, programs that, that exist to try to guarantee those. But again, I think going back one, to- One of them, one of them, one of them was actually in 2012, during the uh, 2012, 2013, during the Arab Spring, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, so some of those programs were expanded um, in the aftermath of the Arab Spring. Uh, Algeria didn't see the kind of upheaval that its neighbors did in large part because a lot of the subsidies and, and social spending was increased to kind of head off that kind of movement. Um, so the years 
that I'm that I'm looking at were years in many ways of prosperity, of rising prosperity. Uh, many Algerians were able to access new consumer goods, cars, and televisions, and and you know imported goods primarily that they were not able to get before. So these felt like good years to a lot of people, um, and and I think it's important to acknowledge that the Algerian government had a lot of success in building houses and and you know expanding access to government services in many ways. But there are deep frustrations that came along with these things, and and what I tried to chronicle in the book is uh, the different ways in which public policies put forward by the Algerian government did or did not meet the expectations of citizens, particularly the younger generations. And uh, there are some critical areas where where things came up short. Um, so, for example, just you know, one sort of symbol of this era is the east-west highway, which is a, a major artery that stretches the whole way across uh, northern Algeria, about a thousand miles across the country, connecting its major cities uh, along the Mediterranean coast. An important economic artery, very necessary, long in the planning. It finally comes to fruition and is finished you know, during this period around 2015, depending on how you, how you count it. Uh, but it ends up being as a result of mass amounts of corruption that went into, into this project, it ends up being one of the most expensive highways in the world per kilometer, uh, or the most expensive by some estimates. And this is also a symbol of, while Algerians are seeing improving quality of life on many fronts, they're also noticing that the people at the top are seeming to gain even more than they are. So while the Algerian government had great success reducing poverty, ensuring that everybody is brought up to at least a sort of lower middle class lifestyle. Um, the people at the top are just drifting further and further away. And the perception of corruption just continued to grow through throughout these years. Uh, the perception that business people were infiltrating the upper reaches of government and forming these corrupt alliances with uh, political and, and military leaders continued to feed the perception during this period that the citizens were, yes, getting some sort of bare minimum uh, and, and some of the things that they were promised, but uh, not in a way that felt fair over the, over the course of that period. Yeah, yeah. And this is exactly the, you know, the, the, the same generation that you're talking about. Uh, that kind of was enjoying that prosperity and some of them were only born in, in the era of the Algerian president, uh, didn't know and didn't witness the black decade, that didn't witness the, the, um, the Algerian civil war and they were growing up in that prosperity era. Yeah, and there's a, uh, there's a you just to jump on that, Zach, there's a, yeah. there's a famous sign that was held up in the first couple of days of the Herak by a young man in Algiers that said, I'm 30 years old and all I've known are 10 years of war and 20 years of Bouteflika. So 20 yeah. years of Algeria's president who ruled from 1999 to 2019 and came to symbolize this whole era of yes, post-war reconstruction, but also corruption and, and yeah. dysfunction. And, and, and exactly, and this, this young generation was remarkably different uh, with, with kind of the previous generations, especially the, the generation. Uh, maybe this person was 30 years old, but the kind of the, the generation Z or the, 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 the younger generation was completely different. There was, there was a, a, a different 
type of personalities and and many other uh, things that that differentiated them. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Since your book also focuses about the Algerian youth, what 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 I would say, what are their dreams? Since we were, you know, we were we we did that program together. It was called Anti Home, which in Arabic means uh, I have a dream. Uh, it was a state department funded program. It was a fantastic program that was giving hope to, to the young generation. So can you tell us more about the young Algerians hopes and dreams and that you talk about in your book? Yeah. Um, so based on all the experiences that I had in the country and all the conversations I had with young Algerians across the country, what I tried to do was in some ways to do the impossible to try to summarize um, what I felt like I kept hearing over and over again in these conversations. So what were the key things that this young generation of Algerians was chasing after? And I ultimately decided to organize it around eight sort of pillars uh, of this Algerian dream and these eight kind of thematic aspirations, uh, which which cover a lot of ground, frankly. Um, so we're talking about things from political voice to economic opportunity, to a clean environment, uh, security and health, justice, fairness. Uh, so, you know, and, and all the way to opportunities to seek entertainment and, and find things to do in their free time, express themselves creatively, uh, sense of identity. So, so there's a lot, uh, a lot of ground to cover, but it's, it comes down to, um, young Algerians want in many ways a lot of the same things that young Americans want and young people want in so many other countries. They want the ability to go out into their communities, into their country, into the world, find a way to add some value and to get some value in return, to start a family, um, you know, the sorts of things that people all over the world want. The challenge is that they're trying to do it in Algeria and the context is so peculiar and, and so challenging in many ways that they often stumbled. And I witnessed an increasing amount of frustration among this generation, the feeling that they just couldn't get over the barriers, that the bureaucratic hurdles were too high, that their education wasn't good enough to get them there. Uh, you know, So many things that they would complain about over time that I just kept hearing and hearing and hearing. And uh, that fed the frustration, I believe, that that prompted the Hirak uprising, but that also feeds a lot of the frustration you hear on the streets of Algeria every day, and that also feeds the frustration that causes many young Algerians to try to flee the country. Uh, of course, there's so many people who legally emigrate away from Algeria and so many who illegally emigrate out of desperation. Yeah, and, and in fact, uh, there were even... Uh, people were doing reverse immigration or reverse illegal immigration in some cases where during the Iraq period, some people were coming back to the country at the beginning of Iraq uh, because that big spare of hope was was uh, was immense and was was regional. So I guess- yeah, I, you know, Just a, a moment on that. I think it's really important to highlight this. Um, there was such an incredible shift in the mood in Algeria. And, and I think you summarized it very well, Zach. Uh, there was this moment of hope that felt very different from everything that had come before it. And, and young people suddenly uh, seemed to switch on and, and really engage. Uh, so this is generations that, that have been called apolitical and apathetic by leaders. And suddenly they're out in the streets protesting, they're making political manifestos, they're 
filling a wall with all of their hopes and dreams in downtown Algiers. Uh, so there's all these symbolic uh, and, and very concrete steps that they're taking to show that, no, we were not sleeping. No, we were not apolitical. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, this outpouring of engagement and excitement was quite unique in my time in Algeria, so in, in that period I'm covering. And I think uh, the fact that it has not panned out as, as they had hoped, which, which I know we'll get to, um, is, has really caused the mood to swing quite strongly back in the other direction. Absolutely. The mood had was completely changed. And there were periods, if you talk to anyone, any any Algerian or, or, or you know, uh, expert political analysts, they all agree about, about that, that there were different phases and different moods uh, throughout the Iraq. And in fact, I think I think we will we will discuss a little bit more about the current, you know, the current events and the current situation in Algeria as well as the current global events. But before then, I think one last question uh, is specifically about the book is 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 really about the main lesson i think if if the audience today uh will be living this this live event what is what is for you the the one thing that you tell them that you know they learn in reading this book what is the you know the main lesson and i think i would also add a second question is why did you write this book in the first place because you could have ended you know uh have had you know this beautiful instagram account with your beautiful photos and your travel blog but you wrote a book and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's i think a very good testimony of, of of the algerian society and algerian culture why so i wrote the book that i wish I had had in my hands when I first went to Algeria, because when I first went to Algeria, I did not find much written about the country. Uh, this, as, as you know well, is a, an unfortunate fact of life in, in the English-speaking English world where Algeria is relatively invisible. Uh, few people write about Algeria, few people cover Algeria. It's a place that if people know it at all, it seems to not change very much. Um, you can find things written about the Independence Revolution, uh, a moment when Algeria, you know, really shone brightly on the international scene, but very little about the contemporary uh, country and its society, culture, politics, economics, et cetera. So I tried to present what I had learned during my years there, uh, presented through the lens of this up and coming generation that sees the country so uniquely and that is gaining prominence and, and will one day kind of get the... Uh, get the keys, uh, it may be a while away, but but it's going to happen. And so I thought it was quite interesting to understand better who they are and, and what they're about. Uh, that said, I also resisted the temptation to be too prescriptive in, in the message that readers take away. Um, I've done my best to present something that I think can have multiple interpretations. Um, one thing that certainly shines through is Algeria is a country of huge potential. Uh, this, is a, this is something that anyone who visits it can see. It's also a country, unfortunately, of unrealized potential. And so much of the energy that, that young generations bring to the table, um, you know, they, they can't find a place to put it. They can't find a way to exert it that will get them moving forward. And so it's a story of frustration also in that unrealized potential, um, but, that potential is still there. The hope, while 
temporarily dashed by uh, by recent events and by the Herox uh, sort of being snuffed out by by the powers that be, you know that hope is still there, and um, I think there's a lot of reason to be hopeful for Algeria's future. But you know another lesson, if you will, of the book is and and the story that it presents is that Algeria's had a number of periods in its contemporary post-independence history where things have been going very, very, very well and then suddenly crashed. And what this is a symptom of is a system that has difficulty adapting, uh, a, a government that can see problems coming and can't seem to find solutions to them in time to avoid a breakdown, a crisis, uh, you know, something of this nature. In the past, in the 1980s, when oil prices crashed and subsidies were cut, you know, this led to a rather hasty, ill-thought-out political opening that did not end well and devolved into violence. Nobody wants to see that again, least of all Algerians. Uh, and so the question is, how do you avoid that? And, and what I hope is that while I've written this book for outside audiences, primarily to explain the book to, to foreigners who are interested in learning about Algeria, I do hope that Algerians who read it also contemplate this question and, and think about how do we get to a point where we can adapt and we can bring forward concerns and understand that they're, they're being heard, they're being addressed, and changes are being made at the policy level to avoid uh, breakdowns that cause people's frustration to rise so high that they consider violence as, as the only solution. Yes. That's yes, the thing I, we really I, need to. I, I think it's, I think it's something that, so that's very uh, brilliantly well highlighted by you as well is, is the peacefulness of the, of the protests and the hierarchy in the first place. I think um, uh, very few, at least uh, casualties happened during this uh, peaceful revolution that lasted at least, at least lasted for a year. Um, and, and, uh, we do remember international press writing about this peacefulness. We do remember that a lot of people, especially in the first weeks, were very impressed by how things did not turn out to be violent. Um, and and the, you know, relative to, to the mass of the people that were in the Algiers street, which you describe very well in your book and, you know, the main uh, street arteries, the douche morad and, and all of that. So I think it's it's something that you, you're highlighting very well. Um, um, yeah, so, uh, you know, we can go on and, and talk about, about the Hirak and the Algerian youth. I think for hours, Algeria is, is such a, a big country, uh, has a profound and, and long history. I think we can speak for hours, uh, but I think we should talk also about the current Algeria, like the current today Algeria and the situation. What do you think is going on and where is it headed? Well, there's a lot going on. Um, to take a look at, you know, kind of the continuity of, of what we've just discussed, you know, where's the Hirak, for example, it could be a starting point. Uh, the Hirak these days is is dormant. I would is the word I've been using to describe it. Uh, protests restarted after a pause for the uh, a voluntary pause by the protesters themselves for the COVID nineteen pandemic. The uh, protests restarted, but were pretty quickly, within a matter of uh, weeks, snuffed out by 
authorities through a combination of, of measures to ramp up, essentially ramp up the cost on protesters uh, and encourage them to stay home. So you saw increased police presence, uh, you know, different tactics by police to push people out of the streets. Uh, and you saw legal changes, which enabled authorities to basically con consider anybody a terrorist, uh, anybody that they wanted a terrorist, you know, just for making statements that opposed the party line, if you will. So these changes uh, implemented in, in the middle of 2021 put an end to the weekly Iraq protests, but they didn't put an end at all to the frustrations that had motivated those protests. And so the challenges that prompted people to go out in, in huge numbers uh, into the streets still exist. There are still deep frustrations around education, housing, sanitation, you know, all sorts of different things. Uh, healthcare has been one area that's seen huge challenges in, in the last months and years. Uh, there's been successive waves of very extreme uh, COVID infections that have caused the Algerian health system to be quite honestly on the verge of collapse. Um, this is not something that any Algerians want to see, not something that Algerians would expect given that the, the current president has said that Algeria has the best health system in Africa. Um, so again, the comparative effect is very strong and, and young Algerians are on the internet every day. They get it, they're not duped by these kinds of uh, old school propaganda messages anymore. And, and so they hear something like that and they look out you know, into, their daily lives and they say, well, I was at the hospital yesterday and, you know, they don't have clean sheets for the new patients. They've run out of oxygen. Uh, why is that the case? And why is this president of mine saying this when I can see the reality with my own two eyes? And I also know that it's not like this in many other countries. So again, um, I think those frustrations haven't gone away. So what I see is a, a situation where there's a dormant, uh, you know, protest movement, if, if you want, maybe that, that's a bit too organized a term to describe it as, but certainly the, the makings of one still exist. And um, there's a profound tension within Algerian society between authorities who would like to pretend that, that everything is normal and, and citizens who, um, you know, have a lot of reasons to, uh, to ask for, for something better. That's all happening in a very complicated uh, geopolitical context in the last couple of weeks, Absolutely. which is also Especially changing things as well. Yeah. yeah. And and um, talking about the about that that specific context, can you can you maybe talk to our audience a little bit about the the recent diplomatic and regional changes that happened, especially when there was this crisis, I guess it, it, it began kind of uh, with, with the French visa issue, but before then there was the, you know, um, kind of a buildup uh, uh, of, of the Algerian-Moroccan tension about the, the Western Sahara. Maybe you can give a brief 
you know, uh, context uh, about uh, that as well to, to our audience. And the, you know, the normalization of relationships between Morocco and Israel as, as the trigger of that, of that uh, diplomatic crisis and how it led also today to how it ties to the economic crisis. I, I've been talking also to some, some, uh, some people, uh, political analysts about the situation and some have been quite optimistic about the economic crisis because the oil and gas prices are going up again because of the um, the, the 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 Russia and Ukraine uh, war and and crisis. Can you also elaborate on that? I guess I think yeah. because the IWP audience is very uh, very you know tuned to to diplomatic uh, uh, relationships, and I think it's very important to to, to address those. Yeah, of course. Uh, I'll take the. Um... Yeah, Algeria's foreign relations question first, because it's related to so many of these issues. Uh, as you mentioned, the normalization of relations between Morocco and Israel was a real trigger for uh, a change in the way that Algeria and its authorities look at their place in the region. Uh, Algeria, of course, is the largest country in North Africa geographically, uh, has a population of 45 million, which is a, a quite a bit larger than, than its neighbor Morocco, much larger than its neighbor Tunisia. And so Algeria sees itself as um, a real heavyweight in this region, but in some ways uh, doesn't always, uh, I mean, you could say it punches below its weight in some ways because Algeria was caught off guard by this announcement from Morocco and Israel quite visibly, uh, caught off guard again a couple months later by the revelations that Moroccan authorities had been using uh, Israel, Israel's Pegasus software to spy on thousands of Algerian targets, including senior political and military officials going all the way to the top of the Algerian state. Uh, so Algerian authorities having gotten caught off guard several times in, in a short period, were, I think, feeling quite vulnerable, uh, worried about their perception by Algeria's population, uh, especially given the ongoing political tensions raised by the Hirak, which uh, you know portions of, of that protest movement were really quite uh, stridently calling for a change in the military's place at the center of and as the guarantor of uh, of the state and and calling for a, a genuinely civilian government, so the Algerian military um, was in perhaps a precarious position and and then you know these revelations made things worse. Uh, as a result of that, I believe they have made several decisions since then, uh, cutting off relationships with with Morocco. All diplomatic ties uh, were cut back in the summer of 2021 and uh, going through another round of many historical rounds now of uh, difficult moment, difficult relations with, with France. Uh, again, these, these relations sour periodically, but we've certainly seen a, a bad period back at the, in the latter months of 2021, which we seem to maybe be coming out of these days. Uh, it's, it's quite cyclical. But um, yeah, so so you know Algeria's uh, relations with its neighbors, with outside countries, uh, as a result, in large part of its history and its brutal colonial period, um, you know Algeria has rather special, uh, sometimes testy relations with outside countries. It's very uh, important to Algerian authorities and to Algerian citizens to 
guard their sovereignty. This is uh, important everywhere in the world, but I think Algerians prize it uh, far more than most. So in this context, um, you know, there's, uh, there's a lot of tension in, in Algeria's international relations, um, but signs that some of them are, are moving in a good direction. And I think the, uh, you know, we can talk more if, if members of the audience are interested about uh, Algeria's relations with the outside world, but I, I do think there's always room for improvement and, and ways to re-engage and, and improve those, those relations. Um, another thing you mentioned to, to take a look more directly at the economic angle um, is the question of, of gas and oil, prices of which have increased dramatically in recent weeks. Uh, we've seen some major policy shifts within Algeria as a result of this, uh, notably canceling a number of new taxes that were imposed uh, just weeks ago. Um, you know, very shortly thereafter, they were they were canceled, which tells you kind of the pace at which this change has happened. And uh, new subsidies put in place, including uh, a new um, unemployment benefits package for for young people. So there's been some important policy changes that reflect that the Algerian government has a new degree of confidence around its budget that it has not had for many years. Uh, Algerian oil bottomed out around $25 a barrel, I believe, in uh, around April 2020. That was the most recent low point, and it has since climbed uh, in under two years to, I think today, around 110 a barrel. So it's a dramatic rise that is uh, has really reversed the government's fortunes. This is the primary source of export revenue, uh, makes up the majority of the state budget and gives those in power a tremendous amount of leeway that they didn't have just a few months ago to be able to um, buy social peace, uh, if, if you will, and, and make decisions that uh, allow them to satisfy various interest groups within the country. Excellent, excellent. I think I think we have reached a point. I would I would be delighted to carry on this conversation, maybe around Q and A, and and have some of the answers. Great. So I we we open the Q and A session. Uh, we'll be very happy to take questions. Feel free to type your questions in the chat. There is uh, one question already, a uh, very good question actually, that says that it's pretty obvious that you have some good, uh, amazing linguistic skills. Did your Arabic Algerian dialect skills and the way you immerse the culture help you connect with the youth? So was, was your, your linguistic skills, was that very useful? As well as did you at any point feel that you're by speaking French or another 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 language, either French or Algerian, put you in a position to be, you know, seen differently by Algerians. And how were you viewed by some um, senior political officials or you know cadre? Uh, in general, they call them cadre uh, in in the political scene. What was your experience? Yeah, um, language skills were quite central to my. Uh, very positive experience in Algeria, I would say. I, I think there's no doubt about that. That was what enabled me to break the ice in many conversations, to yeah, enter into conversations I never would have been able to otherwise. Uh, so definitely something that made the difference for me between 
somebody who is kind of a passive observer of Algeria and, and standing back at a distance and, and, you know, you can be living there, but if you can't speak with people, you might as well be, yeah, back in Washington or elsewhere. It's, it's, uh, it's not really a place that you can see and feel and touch until you can interact with people on that level. And French is, uh, was hugely helpful for that, but, but of course, Algerian Arabic, uh, which I picked up by sort of adapting uh, the Moroccan Arabic I already knew, uh, was was what enabled me to to really break through and I think earn people's trust. So going beyond just being able to communicate with them, but but being able to to earn some trust, make deeper friendships, and uh, and then begin to ask people about some of these very weighty topics, uh, things that sometimes people aren't interested in talking about. What are your hopes and dreams? And uh, you know, what are your thoughts about your government? And what are your thoughts about you know all these deep identity issues? Uh, so I had some fascinating conversations uh, as a result of that. And then yes. Um, Linguistic differences are quite complicated uh, in Algeria. This this question of French versus Arabic versus Berber, of course, uh, Tamazight, as, as it's known, um, is hugely central to Algerians' identity and the way that they express it and the way that they interact with one another and, and with outsiders. So uh, certainly um, a complicated issue that I think would require many, many other lectures, but that I discuss at length in the book um, because it was so so central to my experience there. Where where can we get the book? Uh, yeah, the book's available from uh, yeah major booksellers all over the world. Uh, in the U.S., it's available on Amazon, uh, Bookshop, Barnes and Noble, the usual suspects, and can be ordered in any independent bookstore through their supplier network if if you'd like as well. So there is a, an interesting question about human rights in, in Algeria and the measures that the international community has been taking so far or has taken uh, in regards to the Herak. Uh, yeah, well, the human rights situation is currently looking quite dire compared to what it has been at, at many points in, in recent years. Um, as I mentioned, there's been a sort of an increase in repressive measures to tamp down the Hirak. Uh, there are currently several hundred political prisoners being held in Algeria, many people being held on extensive pretrial detainment, so not even aware of the charges that are, that are facing them. Um, there's a lot of a lot of problems. Uh, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty, these groups are doing a great job uh, doing the best that they can documenting as much as possible in cooperation with a lot of domestic groups within Algeria who are really feeling the pressure these days. Um, and then as for what international actors can do to help, I think it's important to elevate those local voices that are doing their best to, uh, to track what's happening. Uh, let the Algerian government know that it's important that those voices continue to be heard um, and that you know nobody wants to see anything happen to them the way that things have been happening to, to other civil society groups in the country. So um, you know that's an important first step. And then um, you know from there that things get more challenging. It's it's a um, as I mentioned a country that is that prizes its sovereignty to an incredible degree uh, does not appreciate anybody trying to suggest what it should do within its own borders. Uh, but certainly 
you know, Algeria, despite the fact that its leaders wish it was an island self-sufficient uh, from the world, cut off and, and able to function entirely on its own, Algeria needs the outside world. And uh, Algeria needs the outside world for goods, uh, for trade. It's, you know, selling oil to the outside world, selling gas to the outside world, importing a tremendous amount of manufactured goods, of food. So, um, there's a lot of opportunities there, I think, to, to engage in diplomacy, um, as well as the fact that Algeria is facing a lot of challenges at home where it could benefit from external expertise. Uh, it's not a place that finds it easy to ask for that, but Algeria is facing a growing climate crisis uh, as a result of climate change. The country's uh, experiencing year after year of drought, water resources are dwindling, um, power generation, clean water, you know, all of these sorts of things that are central to the government's ability to, uh, to ensure the livelihood of citizens are under threat. And, uh, you know, domestic energy use continues to boom while renewable energy has not really ever been something the government has invested in seriously. There's a lot of opportunities for outside assistance to, uh, to engage on these issues too. So again, yeah, a, yeah. a number of points that I think, uh, outside partners could engage with with the Algerian government on. And, and talking about outside expertise, I think that the there is a question about the Algerian diaspora because the Algerian government had been promoting and talking about the Algerian diaspora's role uh, in, in the Algerian economy, in the Algerian development, especially the diaspora that lives. I think the, the biggest diaspora is obviously in France. There's diaspora in the UK, in Germany, in Canada, in the US. There's a, yeah. uh, a very, very influential people who happen to actually have even political, senior political roles in the US. Uh, uh, quoting uh, the former head of the NIH, was actually an Algerian doctor. So do you believe, um, there's a question that that asks you, um, you know, what do you think of the Algerian diaspora's role in, in, in Algeria's development? The Algerian diaspora is, from everything I've seen uh, all across the world and all the countries you mentioned and others, extremely engaged in what's happening within the country. And I think that's a hugely positive sign because those who are living in the diaspora are living a very different experience than their compatriots back home, uh, but gaining new skills, gaining new perspectives. And when they do go back to the country and even when they stay where they are, but engage regularly with uh, the country remotely, I think they bring new ideas, uh, new ways of thinking, and they're extremely adept at translating them for their compatriots uh, to act upon. So I think the diaspora has a huge role to play in Algeria's future economic diversification, um, you know, all of the steps that, that one would want to see Algeria take in the years ahead, I think will rely on input from the diaspora. Um, so I, what I hope is that the diaspora can continue to engage, that Algerians within Algeria can continue to engage with them and that both sides are willing to uh, and, and to not let differences come between them. There, there have been instances where, um, you know, whether it's authorities trying to divide and conquer or whether it's just a natural tendency for, for people in different situations to, to see things differently and, and uh, drift apart. There have been moments where there's been some tension between the diaspora and, and the community within Algeria. And uh, I hope people can get past that because they have a lot to offer one another. Where, where do you think this tension is coming from? Um, 
it's hard to know. It's hard to know whether it's it's something that just arose naturally or or whether it was provoked. But um, you know, I've certainly heard heard comments from Algerians abroad saying, you know, the moment I stepped on the plane and, and left Algeria, I was rejected and was not considered an Algerian anymore. And and that's a real shame because I think of all those those qualities that the diaspora can bring and, and the positive kinds of exchange they can have with one another. Excellent. There's a there's a very good question. Uh, about again geopolitics and, and international diplomacy, um, you know the, the 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 question is asking if there are good opportunities for Algeria in this new world order, post-COVID world, and the, with the Russia-Ukraine war, uh, i.e., the U.S., China, and Russia. Given the fact that indeed Al Algeria has excellent relationships with with all of the three major. Uh, uh, word polls today. So uh, what do you think of those opportunities for Algeria? Yeah, Algeria is kind of um, among a small class of countries that, that it's in that position. Um, I think it doesn't have extremely deep uh, ties with anyone, but has it has been man has been able to forge a very solid relationship with all three, uh, as as well as with other powers around the country, uh, around the world. And that's something that positions the country well to benefit from the strengths of all three, um, from Chinese exports, you know, from American know-how, technology, things like this. Uh, the relationship with Russia is a big question right now for everybody in the world. You know, what, what kinds of sanctions are going to be imposed tomorrow? What, what is that going to prevent Algeria uh, from engaging on? Traditionally, Algeria has engaged quite a bit with Russia. Uh, it's gotten about three quarters of its military hardware from, from Russia in the last uh, 20 years. Is that going to continue? We have to see. Um, you know, it's, it's important to note that I think Algeria's history and its desire to maintain that sovereignty is, is really something that has caused it to maintain those strong relationships with those countries, but never go too far and never get beholden to any of them to too great a degree that would that would mean that those outside powers would be able to start telling Algeria what to do within its borders. And they're very careful about this, um, which can frustrate outside partners uh, sometimes, but which does mean that um, you know this balancing act, uh, I, I think, is an interesting one and, and somewhat unique in the world. Um, but, you know, even for American diplomats, for example, who sometimes are tempted to think, oh, the, the Algerians are completely in the Russians' pocket. Um, you know, there's a lot of instances where the Russians would have liked to increase and, and tighten those relationships with Algeria much more, and Algeria has rebuffed them. Um, you know, Russia's been trying for decades to build a naval base in, uh, in Algeria, and there is no naval base in Algeria. The countries militaries work closely together, are, you know, have considered each other allies, et cetera. Um, but they haven't taken that step. And so, you know, I think that that's simply, a, I, I mentioned that simply to say that nobody out there should lose hope in their relations with Algeria. It's a place that you can always engage with to some degree. Um, they may want to engage with other partners and not be your best friend, but, you know, that's, uh, that's just the nature of this beast. Okay, I guess one of the very last few questions, where, where do you see Algeria in the next five to 10 years? 
I think it really comes down to what uh, senior officials in the government decide to do around these questions of, um, you know, these aspirations that that young and you know middle-aged and, and younger generations have that are perhaps different from their own. Uh, the officials running the country tend to be pretty high up there in the age uh, spectrum and and not always very well in touch with younger generations' desires. Uh, are they listening is a key question. If they're listening, are they willing and able to do something about it? Uh, one way to look at the Algerian political system is that it's a series of clans fighting at the top. You don't always know which side is winning, which side controls what, um, but it's a competitive system at the top, a closed competitive system. If that is the model we accept, um, and, and I think it's a pretty good one in many ways, what it says is that Algeria doesn't always have somebody at the helm who's able to course correct when a course correction is needed. And, and I think one of the reasons why this model is quite compelling is because if you look at moments like the Herak, which so many people saw coming in so many ways, as, as you mentioned earlier, that frustration was building in 2017, 2018, 2019. There had been protests against President Bouteflika already the previous presidential election in 2014. So much of this was quite predictable and yet it happened anyway because the powers that be were not able to settle on an alternative candidate to the president uh, at the time. And, and if that kind of decision-making by inertia continues and Algeria is not able to course correct in response to internal or external challenges, uh, I do think you're gonna see people forced to, to confront the state. Again, we hope not violently, um, but that is a possibility. And, and that's why I do often say that I think Algeria's leaders today are playing a dangerous game by not listening more attentively to what uh, people in the streets are calling for and by not taking their concerns seriously. So where it's gonna head, uh, I don't know, but I know that the frustrations that have existed for many years are still there. I know that they're uh, going to continue to build unless addressed. And what I hope is that those in power use some of this newfound wealth they have, uh, thanks to the rising oil prices, to genuinely address some of those concerns and, and not just paper over them as they often have in the past. Uh, whether the mechanisms of, of government allow them to do that or not uh, remains to be seen. But uh, I try to stay optimistic about, about Algeria's future. There's some amazing young people, uh, really talented and bright people who want to see the best for their country. And uh, I, do, uh, I do hope that you know, we all see Algeria realize a bit more of its potential in the years ahead. Thank you very much, Andrew. I really wish we could carry on this conversation. It's, it's a fascinating discussion with you. I think we, we're learning so much about, about youth and the relationship of the Algerian uh, government with the society, the, the regional, international, diplomatic uh, relationships. Um, I really wish we could have more time, but time is up. Uh, I would like to really, really thank you for, for joining us this, uh, this evening and, and thank also all of you who uh, turned in here on Zoom and, and Facebook. I Just to remind our audience, uh, Andrew Ferrand uh, is a non-resident senior fellow 
covering North Africa and the, at uh, the Atlantic Council and is the author of The Algerian Dream, published in 2021. You can uh, get the book in all the major uh, platforms. Um, and to remind all of you, our audience as well, the Institute of World Politics, of those who don't uh, who are new, uh, IWP is a graduate school of national security, intelligence, and international affairs. Uh, we have uh, various degrees, certificate programs, doctoral and online programs, you are very welcome to go and uh, check out the website iwp.edu. If you are interested um, in learning uh, more about the future events and the upcoming webinar events, supporting IWP or applying to one of our programs, please go to iwp.edu, iwp.edu. Thank you very much and hope to see you very soon. Thank you. Thank you all. Take care. Bye.